1: We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the Atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, Ben, here we go again. So we... (laughs) We are talking about 3rd Nephi 8 through, oh, what are we talking about? 8 through 11. And these chapters are, they're intense. They're more intense than I thought they were going to be for me going through this time. There has been, you know, you and I have been talking for the last hour before recording because we we started talking late last night and then again early this morning and we started to realize, yeah we got to get on we got to get on the same page about a few things about these narratives these are not as easy chapters as i had remembered not too long ago going over these and it it requires a lot of thinking and a lot of soul searching and especially 8 9 and 10 but as you were talking earlier something ha- magical happens when chapter 11 comes along
0: yeah so the the construction of these chapters is such that there's a lot of not not only confusion in the text in the description here you know there's the darkness there's the the mayhem of all the storms the people not knowing what's going on the weeping and wailing and all this stuff then you get to chapter 11 and it's literal light it's a breath of fresh air you know everything is clear and as we were delving into Sort of different ideas as as to what's going on in chapters eight, nine, and ten. How do how do these chapters fit into our overall narrative of the Book of Mormon? But then also the plan of salvation and the character of God itself. There's really a lot of difficulty there. Uh, We we found these chapters difficult, and I I love how then when you get to chapter eleven, it kind of just all makes sense. And so as we were we were going through these chapters, I I kind of think an analogy for me would be that you're kind of putting together a puzzle and you come across a very weird piece that doesn't seem to fit well anywhere. You can't. you've turned it uh, turn it a bunch of different ways. you try to fit it in here or there and uh, a lot of times when that happens, you don't see where it fits in and so you set that piece aside. I've done that with these chapters before. There's a lot about them that I couldn't fit in, couldn't understand how it fits in with, with everything else. So I've set that piece aside. And now I've come back to it, and I've got to find a way to fit it in. And there's a lot of different ways that I think it can go. And so I'd like to discuss a lot of those. But again, what I love about it is that as soon as you leave that discussion behind, we get to chapter 11 where Christ comes. And all of a sudden, you see the whole puzzle picture the, the shape of that piece doesn't matter so much anymore because you see the whole picture. And so even though we spent like the past hour or so talking about eight, nine, and 10 in mostly, I hope that the bulk of our time actually is spent on 11. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, let's let's do that. Let's get through these uh, first few chapters quickly and then spend the bulk of the time on 11. I I definitely agree. Yeah, and I find it interesting, nobody else would really know this, ben, but besides you and I, we don't always have to get together to be able to talk so much about these chapters. Sometimes, you know, you're doing your reading, I'm doing my reading. We just come together and we discuss and it comes together. But this one took some extra time. And I think for it, because of how these chapters really paint a picture of God's nature and in a very specific way. And for me, one of my favorite quotes that I've been really sitting with for the last several months comes from a Catholic theologian. His name was Thomas Merton. And he said, so much depends on our idea of God, yet no idea of him, however pure and perfect, is adequate to express him as he really is. Our idea of God tells us more about ourselves than about him. And what I, what I really love about this quote is, and it is really personal, is I started to realize that in a lot of my life, I've projected a lot onto God. My own personal insecurities, my own personal failures, my weaknesses, emotions that I have, I've projected that onto God as though that's the way God views me, or that God looks at me that way. And I've had to learn through repentance because that's the very definition of repentance to see God anew and thereby see ourselves anew. Just different characteristics to the nature of God. A lot of the times, especially kind of in our in our culture, in our religious culture, We tend to think of the nature of God as the attributes of God. For instance, you know, we, you know, we say the nature of God, if you ask a Latter-day Saint, what is the true nature of God? Nine out of 10 times, it's my experience that you're going to start to get a conversation about the embodiment of God, that God, the father Mm -hmm. has a body. And then that's the true nature of God. But that's, that's really not it. For instance, I can tell you guys that my grandfather had four, four toes and that I have his blue eyes now, he had five toes. I, I, I think he had five toes. I don't know if, what how many toes he had. But I can tell you something abnormal about his physical characteristic or his physical uh, persona, and that's not going to tell you anything about his character or his nature, about who he was as a person. And the same thing about God. We can talk about God as an embodied God, but it doesn't really give us a lot of access to his nature. And these chapters for me are difficult because of how the nature of God is portrayed, So for instance, here in chapter 8, 9, and 10, this is all about the destruction of the people in the Americas, the Nephites and the Lamanites and all the cities. This is when the destruction that was foretold happens. And the fact that it's a destruction is one thing, but it's specifically that when the destruction happens, as it does all through chapter 8, because that's what chapter 8 is, is it's all, all of the different cities that are burned, several cities fall into the ocean, Um, I think Zarahemla Hamlet catches fire. Some cities where they were on a plane are broken up into mountains and all sorts of crazy things just happen. And it takes about three hours now in all of the literature I've been reading. And I've read for years and years and years from, from all the Mormon scholars, they say that this, all of these things are basically 100% typical of a volcano of a really massive volcano. You're going to get thunderings, you're going to get massive whirlwinds, you're going to have darkness clouding, you know, the the pyroclastic flows and all the other flows that come along and block out the atmosphere and cause darkness so thick that you can't let them match. All of these things, the liquefaction that occurs because of the earthquakes and the rumblings and sending cities down into the oceans, all of these things can be explained easily by one supervolcano happening. Now, where that happens, I don't know. But because of that, we have all of this literature saying this is a natural event that happens but yet when chapter 9 rolls around all of a sudden we have this voice that comes along in the darkness that starts taking credit for everything that's happened specifically city by city you have this person who is Jesus who's we believe is Jesus Christ who is now saying i burned this city i drowned this town I I caused this one to be broken up. I caused the mountains to fall on this one. I did all of that. And it's just an interesting characteristic to the nature of a loving god who just comes through and obliterates and mass genocides, mass kills, what's the word here? An entire civilization of people. What do you think, Ben?
0: Yeah, so a lot of questions a lot of questions raised there and if we're going to wrestle with this concept here You know, I think we can start off with chapter eight. The narrative here, we get all of these uh, tempests and fires, which people are told were signs of the coming. Just like you said, this, this could be potentially explained by a volcano. More to the point, this is symbolic of the confusion that's happening among the people because of their general state of wickedness. And then again, along with the symbolism here, which it is apparent that these things literally happened, but I just want to speak to the, the interesting symbology that we can learn in terms of what this means in, in relation to the people's relationship with God and then our relationship with God. And so I, I like how this can be symbolized here over in verse 21 of chapter 8, and there could be no light because of the darkness, neither candles... Neither torches, neither could there be fire kindled with their fine and exceedingly dry woods, so that there could not be any light at all. And there was not any light seen, neither fire nor glimmer, neither the sun nor the moon nor the stars, for so great were the mists of darkness which were upon the face of the land. This total lack of light and even ability to kindle light, at least from the perception of the people, the ability to do this, really kind of drives home the the point of what Christ says when he says he's the light of the world and if he is out of the world right he has died and his spirit is in the spirit world then symbolically that light of the world has left and so there's no way to to kindle that light now obviously doesn't hasn't literally happened universally because people are still alive and you you know without what we would call the light of christ people wouldn't even be able to breathe but i i do like the symbolism of that here you know we have the people that go through a great mourning phase. I think one level of analysis of these chapters, you could probably find a lot of beatitude stuff here. Um, you know, you see the people lose everything, basically, right? Poor in spirit, they go through a phase of mourning. They go through this phase of of hungering and thirsting after righteousness, wherein they're trying to seek God and understand who He is, and then they're they're filled with a, a greater understanding of Christ, and then. Anyway, it, it moves on for that. So I think that there that, that could be one level of analysis that we will often pull in. I don't know if we'll get to that now. Maybe that's something we we look at another time. So I really like how that could all fit through on chapter eight. Now, to your point that you just asked, or your question that you just asked, starting with chapter nine, this is uh, this is, like you say, difficult. So there's various ways that we can look at this. And one of them is the way that... Chapter 9 speaks, so this voice that comes and speaks, is speaking in the first person so much, I, 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 talking about everything that was done. We were discussing a lecture that Nibley, Hugh Nibley gave about this a while back, and he was describing this sort of literary device, I guess, this is sort of an ancient scripture type of literary device this sort of monologue that goes on where the God is announcing all of his great accomplishments or, or deeds. Right. And so what what was it? eritology, something like that. Is that right? Yeah. So this is an interesting exercise in that here. All this to say that this can fit into an ancient scripture narrative of a people's view and concept and perception of God as such in their current state. And why I think this is an important way to view it, not the only way to view it or not even the most important way to view it, is because it speaks to that point that you were talking about, where one of the ways that this can fit in is by saying, look, this isn't a revelation of the true nature of God, but this is a revelation of what the people perceive god to be and what we can learn from it is that if we perceive god to be in the same way then we you know we that kind of gauges where we are in terms of our our area of repentance and turning to an understanding of of god and 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 actual his his actual character and so this sort of helps us sort of uncover our own um, thoughts and and ideas as you were talking about of God and how they relate to the actual truth, which is going to come up in chapter 11. to that point, you had a quote, I don't remember who it was by, but um, it made me think uh you can you can bring it up but it made me think of a talk by Jeffrey R. Holland that he gave, oh, probably 15, 16 years ago or something like that I think I think I was on a mission at the time so it would have been uh, at least, 16, maybe 17 years ago. It was called The Grandeur of God. And part of his point in the talk was that Christ came to reveal to us the true nature and character of the Father. And that was the only way that we could know that. And so all of the other discussions and revelations even that had been had before the time of Christ could only do so much. And then when Christ actually came... It was something on a whole new level in terms of an understanding and revealing of his character. Even all the Book of Mormon prophets, you know, have talked all this time about who Christ is and tried to teach about him and everything like that. But we're going to learn more about Christ and his doctrine in one chapter than we have learned about him and his actual character and who he is in all of the rest of the chapters of the Book of Mormon up until this point, including these ones where he talks, apparently, for multiple verses. If you have that quote, Shiloh, maybe that sort of succinctly describes what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, in fact, I just came across the quote today. I think it was even posted by the author today. His name is Brian Zond. And Brian Zond is one of my favorite Christian writers. He's an evangelical, but he he writes these books that are just fantastic. And, and I love him so much. But he posted on social media and he said, for most Western people, God is the amalgamation of the philosophical omnis. Omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, omni-everything. What we end up with in this approach to understanding God are our own ideas, preferences, prejudices, and fears that are magnified to an omni-degree. But a Christian understanding of God is entirely informed by Jesus. See, it's Jesus who gives definition to God, not the philosophical omnis. We don't know God according to the philosophical categories, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. This is Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. The whole point of confessing the deity of Christ is to know what God the Father is like. We must not make the mistake of saying, I already know what God is like, and now I know that Jesus is God. No, see, that's backwards. It's Jesus alone who knows the Father and reveals the Father. The whole point of confessing the deity of Christ is to know what God is like. God is like Jesus. Every other idea about God, no matter where it comes from, must bow to the revelation of God as seen in and through Jesus Christ. Yeah. Okay. Now, I I love this. And when I first read this, I'm like, my goodness. See, in Mormon speak, this is why the Father is always turning over the speaking podium to Jesus Christ and telling us to hear him because it's through Jesus Christ that we learn of who the father is. No one cometh through the father, but by through Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ is our advocate with the father, right? He's not our advocate to the father. He's not trying to like advocate to us, to a God that wants to condemn us. They're both our advocates. Jesus is our advocate with the father. Now, this goes back to uh, a quote by Richard Rohr, who's, a, who's one of my favorites, in a book that he has, uh, it's, it's an audio book, and uh, find it and read it on Scribd. It might even be on Audible. I don't know, I, I, I do Scribd. But in the, I think it's chapter six on, on his, in his book, on the Sermon on the Mount, he goes into three different views that we have of God, and I've brought these up before. But in our faith traditions, in, in our faith journey, there's three general categories of where people are in how they view God. The first category is where they usually see God as some kind of ambivalent God that doesn't really care about him. You know, maybe God comes around, maybe he doesn't. We're not really in the mind scope or really the desire of God. So we're just kind of relegated out to the side in the periphery. Then there's this second category. Not very many people stay in the first category believing in God for that long. They usually shift into the second category and that's where the majority of people stay. They, they come there and they kind of build roots and they stay is in the second category. And it's in the second category where we call it, it's called, we call it a transactional God. We call it a God that is there and is only for us so long as we are in a trans, we are in a transaction with that God that he likes. So we obey his commandments. He gives us blessings. We perform this ordinance perfectly. He validates it for us. We do these things correctly. He reciprocates it with blessings. Now, if we don't do those things, then God is not always a loving parent or a loving, benevolent, compassionate person. God then switches into a destroyer. So then God is not 100% always for you. God can actually be 100% actively against you as well. And so in that way, if you're not living up to God's commandments, you're not living up to God's way, God's coming after you and you're going to get destroyed. And so you always want to be in the correct transaction with him. Now, this constitutes the majority of the Old Testament. Saying the right prayers, saying the right, you know, giving the right ordinances in the right language, doing everything in the right prescribed manner, exactly say this thing, obey this, otherwise it's not valid. That's that transactional way of looking at it. Then there's this third way that is highly informed by the New Testament and by by Jesus Christ. And this third way presents that The universe is always for you. That there is this kind, benevolent universe, and that God is always, always for you. There's never a time that God is not for you. There's never a time that God is against you. That God is always there for you. Now, you can turn away from God, but God is always going to be there for you with kindness, compassion, and long-suffering. Now... The reason why I've begun to see this third view as more consistent to the nature of God than the transactional view really came to me because of section 121, when it said that when he's talking about the priesthood, right? And the priesthood we know is it's the power of God. It's the authority of God. John Taylor said it's the government of God. We, we learn that it's through the priesthood that God does everything with the universe, right? That he organizes all things. But it says in verse 41, No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood. So in other words, there is nothing about the priesthood that can, or even in a a wild thought construct, even ought to. So there's no reality, there's no normative ethic, period. That the rights of the priesthood cannot only be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, by persuasion, by long-suffering, "...by gentleness, by meekness, and love unfeigned, by kindness, and by pure knowledge, which shall enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile, reproving betimes with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, but then showing afterwards an increase of love, lest at any time that person consider them to be an enemy." And then all these things in verse 46, that these dominions come upon us, and everlasting dominions, all without compulsory means. And so for me, that's God. When I read the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and I read that Jesus and I read this about the priesthood, that for me speaks louder to this all-loving, all-compassionate, all... all He's the prodigal father always running for us. And so I think that's the difficulty for me because when we come back here to chapter 9, all of a sudden Christ is the destroyer. Now in verse 10, another thing that brings up the difficulty in these passages is that in chapter 10... In chapter 10, what's going on is we have this phrase where Jesus comes along and he says, And again, how oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, O ye people of the house of Israel, who have fallen? Yea, O people of the house of Israel, all that dwell in Jerusalem, all ye that have fallen, yea, how oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens, and ye would not? Now, I love that analogy. I love that. I love that imagery of just a hen there with, with the chicks just coming up underneath it. I've always loved it. But then he continues on. He says, O ye house of Israel, whom I have spared, how oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, if ye will repent and return unto me with full purpose of heart. But if not, O house of Israel, the places of your dwelling shall become desolate until the time of the fulfilling of the covenant to your fathers. Now, what's problematic for me and what makes this difficult is that it's not that just the hen is there gathering the chicks under her wing. And that the elements are beating down and the rain is beating down and the and the pellets and the, and the hail or whatever is coming down, that the hen is gathering. And it, and so it pelts the little babies that are out there that are just making themselves open to the elements. But in this way of thinking, it's the mother hen that turns into a carnivorous, vindictive, bloodthirsty killing of her own prodigy, of, of her own baby chicks. You're not going to be under my wing. Well, then basically I'm going to see to it that you're not under any wing and then goes out and actively kills them. In other words, see, this is what in, in atonement theory is called the penal substitution theory. It's that God is not always for you. He can actually be against you. And it's that God is, the atonement is basically God saving you from God. God's going to come out to kill you. But Jesus Christ comes in and makes the atonement so that God's not going to come and kill you. He's basically saving you from
0: himself. Kind of like good cop, bad cop.
1: Right. Yeah, it's like a one person, good cop, bad cop. And Ben, I just I just can't get into that. That just for me, my, my experience with God is not that. So that's what I've been wrestling with with these scriptures. And for me, that's what chapter 11 is just like. I hear these angels with harps and like choruses of angels be like, here's the answer. But that still doesn't really come back and give me a really clear answer about how to deal with 8, 9, and 10. I'm still grappling with it. And you said some fantastic things. And one of the things that I've loved what you said is that the voice of the people and how they perceive God is very often informs the way that they interpret what is being said. God speaks and this is how the people interpret it, right?
0: Yeah. So, um, multiple, again, going down with multiple ways that we can analyze and and view this, uh, some ways that I find a lot of truth in, and other ways that uh, fall a little more flat for me. But I think maybe discussing even some of the ones that that fall flat for us or or we don't necessarily agree with might be of value. You know, one thought that I I had come up that someone might might bring up that doesn't hold a lot of weight for me, but I think we we could discuss anyway is the fact that Christ not only died but was resurrected, and so the resurrection means that everyone will be resurrected it invalidates death right the idea would be that well it doesn't really matter that all of these people are dying or being killed because christ has completed the resurrection and so everyone will be resurrected anyway and so their death is not really that big a deal in an eternal perspective type of thing right The reason that that, – you you can tell me what you think about that – but the reason that I don't think that that really gives us much is because if death is completely insignificant in terms of uh, the eternal perspective, then there's not much value to our life experience at all. And it's one thing to say that a Christian who has covenanted with God and taken upon himself the name of Christ has no fear of death because of the resurrection – and, you know, will be okay with dying because of the covenants he's made and, and where he's at in terms of his commitment to Christ and his love for others. It's a It's a very different thing to say that because that's the case or that Christ has been resurrected and will resurrect that it's okay that other people are, are killed or that in this context, Christ actually literally kills those people. So I just don't I don't think that that mode of thinking yields much fruit and I, it doesn't taste good to me in that sense like it doesn't really help me understand who Christ is or become closer to him. I don't I don't feel any love in that explanation, right?
1: Yeah, I agree. You know, it's one of Hugh Nibley's famous ways of dealing with this. And even many Christian theologians outside of the LDS tradition think this way, that God can kill whoever God wants to, but we're not supposed to, right? So mm-hmm. it's like there's the divine standard and then there's the man standard. You know, he tells us to do th- these things. And a lot of the ways we interpret this through scriptures, like, I, I, God, command you to forgive all people, I'll forgive who I will forgive, but of you it's kind of to forgive all people. For me... It's almost like there's a little missed portion of that scripture where God's like, oh, and by the way, I'm going to forgive everybody kind of thing. <laughs> and, and so it's just you go forgive and you go do what you need to do and forgive everybody. Let me be God. And so that's really how I read that scripture is just, I'm going to be God. You be you. Let me be me and let me do what I do. And you go off and forgive everybody. And and so that that's how more of how I interpret that scripture as opposed to, God's going to selectively just start forgiving who he will and what. And so in this case, it also that way of thinking and thinking that God can just go willy-nilly kill whoever he wants to and that we don't, especially when it's Jesus Christ, is that Jesus Christ made flesh. This is even going to the Lectures on Faith, chapter 5, paragraph 2, is that Jesus Christ was supposed to be the personification and he was supposed to be made flesh to show man exactly what it means to be like God, to show man's true ultimate potentiality. And if it's Christ who starts going off and killing willy nilly, we can't make that thing. Well, God's going to kill whoever he wants to. And we can't because Christ's literal purpose is to show us the way to the father. Right. And so this is where, again, it comes back to what Thomas Merton says. So much depends on our idea of God. But yet we find out that our idea of God is telling us far more about ourselves than it's telling us about who he is. And so, yeah, I, I have a really hard time with that whole, well, God's just going to kill them. They're going to get resurrected anyway. No, no, no. That's not the point. Because at that point, when we, we want to make that the point, then this is like what Voltaire says. You know, if we believe in absurdities, we're going to start committing atrocities. And this is one of those absurdities for me is to believe that God is this way because all of a sudden we start to justify mortal actions based on what we think are divine characteristics. Well, if God accepts this, if God does this, then I can do this in the name of God. And for me, that that's like 101, taking God's name in vain. In our culture, we talk, typically think that saying God's name in an expletive manner is taking God's name in vain. But I've come to find out that's in the weak scriptures, sauce,
0: taking God's name in vain.
1: Right. I mean, that's <laughs> like something you teach a three year old. Like, don't say that, you know, and, and that's kind of how you begin that instruction. But as adults, we really need to move beyond that. Yeah. I mean, that is just like, I mean, that that's literally primary sunbeam kind of stuff. When we really get into the nitty gritty, taking the name of God in vain is believing, accepting and promoting and acting in things that we think God would be and do if he were here that he would never condone if he were here personally. And that for me is I really had to evaluate and be like, okay then, well, how do I know what I'm acting in is truly what God would be like? And for me, that is one of the fundamental reasons why the Beatitudes are such a big deal for me. Because going through the process and the story of the Beatitudes... And what that yields on the on the back end of that discussion in seeing kind of the true nature of God and how you juxtapose that with the rest of the world's justifications for ethics, that's where God's nature truly begins to land for me, personally, anyway. So, no, I don't get into that. I don't, I don't believe that whole, God's going to do whatever God's going to do. We're going to do it because, as I said, Jesus Christ made flesh was supposed to show us what the way of being like God was. What would God do if he were here? That's what Jesus Christ is doing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. So going back to uh, the point you brought up about sort of the the voice of the people collectively declaring what they believe God to be, their perception of Him, and and I find this this concept fascinating. You know, when when you read sort of ancient literature, there's this concept of the vox populi, and this is the proto democratic voice of the people right and and it's something that's proclaimed and sort of established as a de facto truth because the people have proclaimed it and here we have sort of a fascinating variant on that of chapter 9 and chapters 9 and 10 and it's proclaimed as the voice of Christ but what actually happens is that it's talking about what people hear Okay, so this is um, not the Vox Popoli, but the Aditi Popoli or whatever, (laughs) what the people hear, what they collectively hear. And so we get these verses like chapter 9, verse 1, it says, There was a voice heard among all the inhabitants of the earth upon all the face of this land. And then we get chapter 10, and we have this verse that says uh, in verse 3, And it came to pass that there came a voice again unto the people, and all the people did hear and did witness of it, saying, We have this collective hearing of this thing. And what does this voice say? It goes on to proclaim again all of these things that God has done. And I see it as a potential proclamation, like I said, of the people's view of who God is in their current state. All of this destruction is happening, uh, has happened. They are mourning their loss. They are feeling judged right for their wickedness. They know their wickedness has brought about a lot of this, maybe in a natural way from natural consequences or simply that they did not listen to the warnings about it and do certain things to prepare. But in in any case, they're in this moment describing or hearing because of their state They feel and what their perception of God is. So they go through a description here of all of the destruction that happens. This is them, you know, experiencing all this humility and self-deprecation for all of their sins and iniquities. And then we get into and who is actually speaking. It's Christ. And everything that's said in here where where Christ is actually speaking and explaining the atonement and, and who he is and everything it's not new revelation to these people all of these things have already been taught to them so it's almost like a regurgitation is a crude way but you know a, a repetition or recitation i should say of the teachings that they have already had and, but they're coming to mind now right all of these understandings are coming to mind and this is this is the label this is the image that they are creating of god and in many ways, it's accurate, and in some ways, we can look at it as inaccurate when we compare it to the truth that we see in chapter 11 and we see in the Gospels. And so I kind of like this concept of it being sort of this variant on the vox popoli, uh, not being their voice, but being what the voice that they hear collectively. And then we get into chapter 11 where they actually have this voice come that is expressing mercy this hen gathering their chickens and again this might go along with the narrative of seeing how the beatitudes might fit into this whole discussion here of what's going on the hen gathering her chickens this is that expression of mercy towards the children and then a mormon gets into uh, starts discussing about all oh, this is a fulfillment of all of these prophecies and then you're going to see you know that that Christ comes this was one way that I was analyzing it, and I I, I think that it, it does a good job of explaining what is really going on here with this voice and what people are hearing versus who God really is and what he's saying versus what people are hearing, right? Yeah. Because what God says isn't always what you hear.
1: What you were saying right there brought up something in my mind. I went back to Samuel the Lamanite real fast while you were talking and I perused this place where he gives the actual sign of Christ's death. I'm going to read that real fast. It's in in chapter 14. But behold, as I said unto you concerning another sign, a sign of his death, behold, well, let me back up. Let me go to verse 19 because in fact, you know what? Let me back up a little let's bit. Let's go further. to first Nephi like, chapter you know one. What? Let's <laughs> just go to first Nephi. <laughs> let's just go all the way back and then like, let's do the, all this over. No. So analyzing chapter 14, Samuel the Lamanite gives the sign for Christ's birth. Then he starts talking about Samuel the Lamanite talking of the resurrection, that there's going to be this repentance and this resurrection, and this resurrection is going to redeem all mankind. And from the resurrection, it comes in and he starts talking about the second death, that that second death is going to be able to be resolved with the resurrection. Let me just read it. Yea, and it bringeth to pass the condition of repentance, that whosoever repenteth the same is not hewn down and cast into the fire, but whoso repenteth not is hewn down and cast into the fire. And there cometh upon them again a spiritual death, yea, a second death, for they are cut off again as to things pertaining to righteousness. Okay, so in this verse, we're talking about spiritual things. What if the people interpreted this as a physical things, this hewn down and cast into the fire? Now, stay with me. And verse 19, Therefore repent ye, repent ye, lest by knowing these things and not doing them ye shall suffer yourselves to come under condemnation, and ye are brought down unto the second death. So the second death we know is that after the first death, which is death, like death-death, like the separation of the body and the spirit, this second death is basically damnation or to be out of the Father's presence. And so he just concludes here with the second death. Then Samuel proceeds forward in verse 20. But behold, as I said unto you concerning another sign, a sign of his death, behold, basically his first death, behold, in that day he shall suffer death, the sun shall be darkened and refuse to give its light, and also the moon and the stars, and there shall be no light upon the face of the land, even from that time that he shall suffer death for the space of three days, to the time that he shall rise again from the from the dead. Yea, at that time he shall yield up the ghost, there shall be thunderings and lightnings for the space of many hours, and the earth shall shake and tremble, and the rocks that are upon the face of this earth that are both above the earth and beneath, which ye know at this time are solid, or the more part of it is one solid mass shall be broken up. Yea, they shall be rent in twain, and shall ever be found in the seams and the cracks and the broken fragments in the face of the whole earth, yea, both above the earth and beneath. And behold, there shall be a great tempest, and there shall be many mountains laid low, like unto the valley, and there shall be many places which are now called valleys, which shall be made mountains, whose height is great. And many Highways shall be broken up, and many cities shall become desolate, and many graves shall be opened up and yield up many of their dead, and many saints shall appear unto many. And behold, thus saith the angel unto me, for he said unto me that there should be thunderings and lightnings for the space of many hours. And he said unto me that while the thunderings and lightnings lasted in the tempest, that these things should be, and the darkness should cover the face of the earth for the space of three days. And then the angel said unto me that many things, greater things than these, to the intent that they might believe that these signs and these wonders should come, and to pass upon all the face of the land to the intent that there should be no cause for unbelief among the children of men. And this to the intent that whosoever will believe might be saved, and that whosoever will not believe a righteous judgment might come upon them, and also that they are condemned, they bring upon themselves their own condemnation. Okay? Now, he concludes by saying in verse 30 and 31, And now remember, remember, my brother, and that whosoever perisheth, perisheth unto himself. And whosoever doeth iniquity, doeth it unto himself. Behold, ye are free, ye are permitted to act for yourselves, and behold, God hath given you a knowledge that he hath made you free. Okay. The reason why I read all of that was to show is that nothing in Samuel the Lamanite's prophecy said that only the wicked are going to be destroyed. Nothing here actually dictates in the prophecy that was given to them the idea that those who are going to be destroyed are the wicked or the righteous. Now, the reason I find that interesting is because then once we come over here to chapter eight in third Nephi, after everything has been destroyed, the first thing that Mormon documents people are saying is, oh, that we had repented before this great and terrible day. And then would our brethren have been spared and they would have been burned and they would not have been burned in that great city, Zarahemla. And in another place, they were heard to cry and mourn saying, oh, that we had repented before this great and terrible day. And had not killed and stoned the prophets and cast them out, then would our mothers and our fair daughters and our children have been spared and not have been buried up in the great city of Moroniha? And thus were the howlings of the people great and terrible. I find this fascinating that the prophecy never said about the wicked. That the, the people's own projection here is that if they had been righteous, they would not have been destroyed. Right. But my question is that if it was a natural event like a volcano, in what manner would they have been saved? Would they have been saved? Are, are we to conclude here that these innocent children who were also killed here, as they said here, that these mothers and our fair daughters and our children have been spared, are we to conclude that they were wicked? That this whole indiscriminate killing of the masses of all these people were just, they were just completely wicked? And something's telling me no, that's, that's not the full story. Because then once this voice comes along and starts going city by city by city in chapter nine, you know, Zarahemla, have I burned with fire? Moroni, have I caused to be sunk in the, in the depths of the sea and all this inhabitants drowned? All of the inhabitants, men, women, and children. Now, and this is where I don't, I, I, again, I depart from Hunibili on this. Because Hunibili also brings up a lot of the times that it's it's okay for us to kill the, you know, the generation that God kills, once they become so wicked that the next generations are just going to be in iniqu- falling into iniquity. And he uses that in his lecture on this topic. And I just don't follow that there because of this verse, the, the last verse in chapter 8, when he's talking about parents talking about their children being burned and, and drowned and being destroyed. These parents who are supposedly righteous enough to be spared, their own children are dying. So there's an indiscriminate killing going on in this natural this natural event, that's not exactly, you wicked people are destroyed, you righteous people aren't, right? And so as he's going city by city claiming this, I'm beginning to see a lot of this as projection, the people's projection onto what they think is God, because at this point, God the Father has not announced Jesus Christ yet. This is not a point yet where they have seen, now Ben, when you were talking and I uh, before recording, You brought up a really interesting point. And and all of a sudden, a lot of things started to click for me when you said it. But it was in chapter 11 when they start to hear the voice, and they don't know where it's coming from, and they don't even understand it. And it comes, and it comes, and it comes, and finally the father comes, right? But in chapters 9, they totally hear this voice, right? This is supposedly a voice they hear. So what's different? What's different between the voice in chapter 9? and the voice in chapter 11 that they can't understand? Why is it that the father announces himself there, but here Jesus comes and supposedly says all these things, and they can supposedly hear him as plain as day?
0: Yeah, and uh, I, I think there's a couple couple ways to go on that one. We've talked about with sort of that vox popoli type of thing, you know, this collective, uh, not just projection, but making their their image of God. And there's plenty of truth in that, right? You know, just because people are are feeling something about uh how they're experiencing God doesn't mean that it's all wrong. It just means that we have to compare it to what the actual truth and what's the standard, who's our exemplar? It's Christ. And so, you know, there's plenty of truth there and 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 scripture that we can pull out of this and and things, you know, for instance like first 20 and 21 are just gorgeous, you know, of of chapter 9. I love them. So, uh, there is one other potential concept here. And, um, I that we talked about possibly not even discussing this. I would say you say you this, didn't if, want if, to,
1: you didn't want <laughs> to. And I was like, you know what? I, I love what you said about the puzzle piece, because for anybody listening, this is not to say that we think this is the case. It's just, it's another way of like turning the puzzle piece and thinking, huh, that's a different image there. What does that mean? So, T- turning puzzle pieces to see what fits where. So, in that spirit, Ben, go ahead because I I really do actually like when you proposed this to me this morning. Uh, I spent all day thinking about this. I'm like, how, how are we going to really talk about this? Is this something that we're really going to talk about? And like, how is he going to talk about this one? And then when you kind of explained it to me, I was I was like, wow that that fits that fits in a lot of areas and it does not really conform to the standard way of thinking about this. So anyway, go ahead.
0: Yeah, so there's there's a another pretty large caveat that I'd, I'd throw on this. If I were writing a book about this, which will never happen, by the way, I don't I don't write books. Like I don't run, you know. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> if I were ever write a book about this, it, this idea that I, that I'm just now sort of exploring and 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 hashing out more as just a a, a curiosity is it wouldn't even be a footnote. It'd be like buried in the appendix somewhere. And only somebody who like wants to read every word of the book would come across this. Okay. So I'm not proposing this as, as something. And and the reason that I say this is that this idea that I want to explore a little bit is going to potentially sound blasphemous to some people. And I ask them to just listen for a minute. Okay. And, and this is it. Chapter 9 starts off with a couple verses here. Um, I'm going to start with verse 2. And this is uh, what the first things they hear of this voice. And it says, Woe, woe, woe unto this people. Woe unto the inhabitants of the whole earth, except they shall repent. For the devil laugheth, and his angels rejoice, because of the slain of the fair sons and daughters of my people, and is because of their iniquity and abominations that they are fallen. So, you know, we talked about Shiloh, how the voice here is, is very different from the voice that we get in chapter 11. In fact, in chapter 11, when we, when we read through that at the beginning, we hear this. It says, it came to pass that while they were thus conversing one with another, they heard a voice as if it came out of heaven and they cast their eyes round about for they understood not the voice which they heard and it was not a harsh voice neither was it a loud voice. Nevertheless, and notwithstanding it being a small voice, it did pierce them, that did hear, to the center. Insomuch there was no part of their frame that it did not cause to quake, yea, it did pierce them to the very soul, and did cause their hearts to burn. And it came to pass that again they heard the voice, and they understood it not. And again the third time they did hear the voice, and did open their ears to hear it. And their eyes were towards the sound thereof, and they did look steadfastly towards heaven from whence the sound came. And behold, the third time they did understand the voice which they heard, and it said unto them, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name. Hear ye him. I first was comparing the tone of that voice to what we get out of chapters 9 and 10. And as I was reading through it, I... Verse 2 of chapter 9 talked about the devil laughing and his angels rejoicing. And it made me think of the story of Enoch in Moses chapter 7. And if we go over to Moses chapter 7, we could read through a bunch of this and have a a long discussion. But actually, I I believe Moses chapter 7 is a really good companion chapter, is what I would call it, to these chapters 8, 9, 10, 11. Because it's Enoch's vision of God and seeing the destruction and everything that happens throughout the world – and then he sees God's attitude towards this, right? And, and there's some great little insights and, into how we would fit this in as the puzzle piece. And I, we won't get into all of that. But I just want to look at verse 26 of, of chapter 7. And it says, And he beheld Satan, and he had a great chain in his hand, and it veiled the whole face of the earth with darkness. And he looked up and laughed, and his angels rejoiced. So this to say, you know, that these days are days of, of darkness among these people. And, you know, I think it's interesting here that Enoch sees Satan veiling the earth in darkness with his chain, right? Almost as if this darkness isn't simply the absence of, of Christ, but the presence of Satan. And in this darkness, we get this voice. And it says a lot of things that are inconsistent with what we might call the character of God. And so what I wanted to propose and explore a little bit is that if Satan were to come to the people at this time and talk to them, what might be some things that he would say to them? And would he give them much comfort or would he shame them? Would he talk about all of the the awful things that have happened and it's all their fault and it's their fault that all of these innocent people have died and, and all, and would he not uh, mix in some truth with it? Would he not potentially proclaim himself to be Christ, to be the only begotten? As I started kind of looking at this, I, I remembered uh, Moses chapter one. This is Moses's experience with seeing God, and then Satan coming. If we take it as a template for how Satan tries to emulate Christ and deceive us, it's a very fascinating way to fit fit or compare to these chapters, especially like 8, 9, and 10. And then 11 When you get into the full picture here of Moses' experience. It it would be beneficial, I think, if you were going to look at this, if you wanted to consider any of the this this idea, that you read through those chapters, again, eight, nine, and ten, and what is your feeling? You know, what are you what are you getting from these chapters? What what is your opinion of God as you are hearing him speak? And how then does that compare to those, just those opening few verses where the Father announces Christ in chapter 11 and Christ comes down and he presents himself as the one who died for them? Not saying, I destroyed all these people because of their iniquities. He's saying, I allowed myself to be destroyed because of your iniquities. And look at the evidence of this. Come, touch the nail prints in my hands and feet and see me. Again, compare that. I'm going to read some of Moses. Compare the two sort of uh, feelings that we get from these scriptures. So Moses has his experience with God, and it says, And the presence of God withdrew from Moses, that his glory was not upon Moses, and Moses was left unto himself. And as he was left unto himself, he fell to the earth. And it came to pass that it was for the space of many hours before Moses did again receive his natural strength like unto man. We have this phrase, many hours, right? So he is, this experience happens, and he just he said to himself, Now for this cause I know that man is nothing, which thing I'd never supposed, because he just viewed all these creations of God, sort of akin to what Enoch experiences. But these people have just witnessed all this destruction, right? And it's this enormous destruction, and they're just awed by the power of what they perceive to be God. But now mine eyes have beheld God, but not my natural, but my spiritual eyes. For my natural eyes could not have beheld, for I should have withered and died in his presence. But his glory was upon me, and I beheld his face, for I was transfigured before him. And it came to pass that when Moses had said these words, behold, Satan came, tempting him, saying, Moses, son of man... Worship me. And it came to pass that Moses looked upon Satan and said, Who art thou? Behold, I am a son of God, and the similitude of his only begotten. And where is thy glory, that I should worship thee? For behold, I could not look upon God, except his glory should come upon me, and I were transfigured before him. But I can look upon thee in the natural man. Is it not so, surely? I mean again, compare your experience and the experience that the people have in hearing the voice of the Father in chapter 11 and Christ actually coming to them versus their experience and their attitude and feeling and state of being in the previous chapters when they're hearing the voice. They're in darkness, destruction. They're weeping and wailing. They're mourning the loss. They think it's because their punishments because of all these things and all these innocent people have died. And that's their experience when they're hearing all of these things Verses, again, chapter 11 when they hear the voice of the Father. So Moses says, But I can look upon thee and the natural man, is it not so surely? Blessed be the name of my God, for his spirit hath not altogether withdrawn from me, or else where is thy glory? For it is darkness unto me. This is what the people are in, complete darkness right now. This is the in in more ways than one, but at least a symbolic way, right? The absence of Christ, the absence of the light of the world, the darkness. But Moses says, You, your presence, is darkness unto me, and I can judge between thee and God, for God said unto me, Worship God. For him only shalt thou serve, get thee hence Satan, deceive me not. For God said unto me, Thou art after the similitude of mine only begotten. And he also gave me commandments, when he called unto me out of the burning bush, saying, Call upon God in the name of my only begotten, and worship me. And again Moses said, I will not cease to call upon God. I have other things to inquire of him, for his glory has been upon me. Wherefore, I can judge between him and thee. Depart hence, Satan." And now when Moses had said, said these words, Satan cried with a loud voice and ranted upon the earth and commanded, I am, saying, I am the only begotten, worship me. This isn't the first time or the only time that Satan claims to be Christ. Even in the premortal life, we we have that He comes and right, He's going to be the only begotten of the Father. And so He is constantly trying to put himself in that position, claim that victory, claim that authority. And yet, when it comes down to it, we can distinguish between them, but he is very good at lying about it. He's very deceptive, and he can tell us a lot of truth to be able to sneak in one lie that can turn us away from Christ or turn us away from an understanding of who Christ is and our relationship to him. And it came to pass that Moses began to fear exceedingly. What were the people f- feeling in verses in chapters 8, 9, and 10? Fear, dread, weeping and wailing, mourning. Moses began to fear exceedingly, and as he began to fear, he saw the bitterness of hell. Nevertheless, calling upon God, he received strength, and he commanded, saying, Depart from me, Satan, for this one God only will I worship, which is the God of glory. And now Satan began to tremble, and the earth shook, and Moses received strength, and called upon God, saying, In the name of the only begotten, depart hence, Satan. And it came to pass that Satan cried with a loud voice, with weeping, and wailing, and gnashing of teeth. And he departed hence, even from the presence of Moses, that he beheld him not. So I I really like how this story could uh, of Moses could really fit into the overall narrative of these chapters, especially as we move into a discussion of chapter eleven and how no longer are the people in darkness and confusion and and just hearing this voice and and not really coming to terms with who God is, but then in chapter eleven when they hear this voice. It's no longer a voice that just everybody instantly understands. It's something that they have to put a little bit of effort into and be still and really listen and seek it to understand it. And then they feel that. So the voice comes the third time they didn't understand the voice which they heard. And it said unto them, behold, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased in whom I have glorified my name. Hear ye him. I like that. It, uh, it says that these are the people that have gathered to the temple. I, I don't know why I had never really considered this before Shiloh, but you know, we talk about the Sermon on the Mount and then I, I, I will often see you say Sermon on the Mount slash Sermon at the Temple. And I'm like, Oh, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I, I, I hadn't, I don't know why I'd never heard it termed that way. We, you know, we always just say Sermon on the Mount, but, you know, Sermon at the Temple it is a good way of saying, Hey, we need to include this account to the people of Nephi, which, you know, after this time for a while, they don't even identify with with that anymore. But we need to include this account because it really shows us that Christ wasn't just teaching this ethic you know, during his mortal ministry, but this was a, a celestial principle, a celestial standard whereby he would teach even the Nephites.
1: You know, everything that you just said really lands for me. And that's, and and you were, <laughs> you're like, I don't think we should talk about this. I don't think we should bring this up.
0: <laughs> like I said, you know, let's take all of that and just throw it in an appendix at the back of the book and say, look, if this is uh, useful to you, great. If not, don't burn me at the stake. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> what I love about everything that you just said. And and for that to be even remotely feasible does require and I and I do understand how much of this has to be reworked and reunderstood, especially chapter 10, because that's really where Mormon is really coming out to show us his intent about why he included 8 and 9. Mormon has a perception of what happened in eight and nine, and it you know you and I were talking earlier about it, kind of the bizarre nature of why of how chapter eight starts. He, he says, "And now it came to pass that according to our record, he's done this before. He's given times and dates before. He's talked about the record before, and we've never questioned it as the reader." But he's like, and now it came to pass that according to our record, and we know our record to be true, for behold, it was a just man who did keep the record, for he truly did many miracles in the name of Jesus, and there cannot be any man who do a miracle in the name of Jesus, save they were cleansed every whit from iniquity. And now it came to pass that there is no mistake made by this man in the reckoning of our time, then the 30 and third year had passed away.
0: <laughs> That's a little bit of rambling, isn't it?
1: It's a little bit of, and it's the strangest flex I've ever heard, <laughs> where I'm like, I'm like, I'm I'm 422 pages into this story. And you've given dates like all the way down year by year, moment after more, moment, month after month. I haven't questioned anything you've said, but for whatever reason, he launches into this weird validation that this was the 30 and fourth year. And I'm like, <laughs> I wasn't going to question you at this particular <laughs> yeah, juncture. Like
0: why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Methinks thou kind of, doth protest too much. <laughs>
1: right. But I'm like, I'm kind of getting to question you now. I didn't yeah. Only- <laughs> But, you know, he, he's a little bit strange there. But then here in chapter 10, I find it's interesting that Mormon is very much, I think, acting in this moment like Matthew in the New Testament. He's trying to show how Christ fulfilled the law. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of ways, now don't burn me at this date. <laughs> I think in a lot of ways, what might be happening and, there, and there's a lot of evidence here in 10, and I don't want to go into a long explanation of it, because I, I do. I want to jump into 11. But I think Mormon is also maybe projecting a little bit onto the story for his intent to be able to show that, that the whole thunderings and lightnings and tempests and earthquakes and the destruction and that whole thing was a fulfillment of all the words of the prophets. But like we went back to 13, or we went back to, to Samuel And Samuel never said it was the wicked that were going to be destroyed. He simply said that things were going to happen. And then it's the people's narrative that they believed it was because, and then that voice, that voice that claims to, in your, in what you said, that it says, I am Jesus Christ, says, I destroyed the wicked, that the righteous might be preserved and how blessed are you. And then we have Mormon kind of saying, and that proves that the story that all the prophecies were fulfilled. So I do recognize if what you were saying, Ben, is true, Mormon may have misunderstood that first part and tried to read into it and, and maybe misread it for his intent to trying to prove the scriptures missed the other part of it. Yeah. If if that's the way that that's going. So I do recognize that for that to be the case, there is going to have to be kind of a working. But the thing is, is I'm okay with that. For me, I can accept that Mormon is a prophet. I can accept that the Book of Mormon is true. I can accept that it is a legitimate record of Jesus Christ, and that we're about ready to start talking about the most beautiful parts of scripture in the entire Book of Mormon, and I'm I'm completely okay with that. And for me, what you you know what may be perceived by many people as heresy, I'm okay with looking back at the, as like a historian looking back on these chapters and saying, you know what, there's a lot of interpretation here. There's a lot of first hand, second hand, third hand accounts, translation issues with Joseph. A lot of things are going into this record, and one of the things that I love, I just love about Mormon, and and it's and and really honestly, I I just almost fanboy over him through the whole thing, is the fact that when he wrote the uh, the title page, where he says that if there are faults in this record, they're the mistakes of men. Wherefore, almost like this pleading, wherefore, please. Please, if I've messed up, please don't condemn the things of God for the things that I messed up on. That you may be found spotless at the judgment seat of Christ. And I love that humility in Mormon. I love the fact that he may have been doing his best. This may be as accurate as an account. Who knows? Maybe it happened exactly like it's in the Book of Mormon. And I'll grapple with it and I'll get to heaven and Jesus will be like, hey, listen, this is what it is. This is who I am. And I'll be like, you know what? Maybe that lands for me good right now. Maybe it doesn't. I'll figure it out, but I'm going to be okay with it. And if Jesus comes along, he's like, listen, um, and Mormon's like, oh man, I got a few things wrong. I'm going to be like, cool, whatever. But chapter 11, man, I just, to be able to think, and and, and part of How chapter 11 starts, Ben, I think is really telling, especially for everything that you just said. If I heard a voice of God speaking all of that stuff, (laughs) my conversation would be a little bit different than this because it says in chapter 11, verse one, and now it came to pass that there were a great multitude gathered together of the people of Nephi round about the temple, which was in the land of Bountiful. And they were marveling and wondering one with another and were showing one another the great and marvelous change which had taken place. Basically, the land had been completely tore apart and re right? And they were also conversing about this Jesus Christ of whom the sign had been given concerning his death. Not the voice that they heard. Mm-hmm. Not the message that they had heard. Not how it pierced them to the very center and soul. But that... And they were conversing about this Jesus Christ of whom the sign had been given concerning his death. Going back to Samuel the Lamanite, that's all that had been given. And then all of a sudden in that, and it came to pass that while they were thus conversing one with another, they heard a voice as as if it came out of heaven. And they cast their eyes round about for they understood not the voice that they heard. And it was not a harsh voice, neither was it a loud voice. Nevertheless, and notwithstanding, it being a small voice, it did pierce them, that did hear it to the center, insomuch that there was no part of their frame that had did not cause to quake, and it did pierce them to the very soul, and it did cause their hearts to burn. See, that didn't happen before. That's not the experience that they had the time before.
0: It's definitely different. This, along with a, a verse in Helaman where it talks about when Nephi and Lehi go into the prison and preach, and it talks about the voice that came to them and said, peace, peace be unto you because of your faith in my beloved, and how it describes that voice. This and that verse are two of the best descriptions for me about the spirit. Now, I know you've had a discussion with Riley about you know how you experience God and this whole hearts that burn thing, you said, you know, nothing like that really ever happened to you. And, and, and me as well. I don't, I don't know that I've had like a burning in the bosom thing, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, what will happen actually it happens less now than when I was a teenager. And I feel like I was just starting to understand how the spirit was speaking to me. It often my heart would race but it wasn't an anxiety race. It was more uh, like a, a – not not exactly adrenaline, but the excitement you get when you get like a new idea and you get kind of giddy. It was that kind of race. Like my heart would race like that. And it doesn't quite happen to me that way anymore. I would say every other word of this verse besides the like heart burning thing, which happens to me but not because of the spirit. The Every other part of this verse – actually really speaks to me and 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 very much describes experiences that I've had with the spirit. So I just love it. And I also love how that description is for the first time they quote unquote hear the voice, but they don't understand it. And isn't that interesting that they can feel the voice without knowing what it actually says. And that is preparing their hearts to actually listen to what it actually says. And so I, I just love that, how how the voice of the Lord, it comes and it's patient, right? It's, it's constantly, it's saying the same thing over over again, and it just finally works their hearts into being able to receive it. And even that first time that they, quote unquote, hear it, it affects them in a way that is a, a preparatory way, to then finally receiving more truth and and who knows but that if you keep listening you'll hear more right is there more you've heard something and you think oh wow that's great is there more maybe we should do a whole podcast just on this chapter shallow we? because we're i mean we're already at that point but uh, this this verse is just so beautiful to me
1: you know going back to the beginning and how we started When I come here and I read verse 6 and 7, and behold, the third time they did understand the voice which they heard. And this is what it said unto them Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name, hear ye him. This goes back to what we brought up before with Brian Zond. And I want to read that again, because with everything that we've talked about before, Maybe it'll land a little bit different. Because Christ in 8 and 9, if that is Jesus, or whatever voice that is, that's an erotology. That's what Hugh what Nibley talked about. It's a literary device where God is basically speaking about himself and his great, His greatness, his miracles, his power, everything that he is about, the things that he can bring about. That's what an erotology is. In other words, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, he's... It's a bringing forward of his power. And so that's what 8 and 9 are all about. It's a discussion of power. This is my power. This is what I've done. But listen again to how Brian Zahn puts this, and then think about this in chapter 11. For most Western people, God is the amalgamation of all the philosophical omnis. Omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, omni-everything. What we end up with in this approach to understanding God are simply our own ideas preferences, prejudices, and fears, magnified to the omni-degree. So think about this in the case of the Nephites. How did how were they perceiving God? How did they project their own fears, their own sadnesses, their own sorrows, supposedly onto this God? This God that was omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, omni-everything. See, but a Christian, going back to Zan, but a Christian understanding of God is entirely informed by Jesus. See, it's Jesus who gives definition to God, not the philosophical omnis. We don't know God according to philosophical categories, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Matthew 11.27 The whole point of confessing the deity of Christ is to know what God is like. We must not make the mistake of saying, I already know what God is like, and now I know that Jesus is God. No. See, that's backwards. It is Jesus alone who knows the Father and reveals the Father. The whole point of confessing the deity of Christ is to know what God is like. God is like Jesus. In every other idea about God, no matter where it comes from, it must bow down to the revelation of God as seen in and through Jesus Christ. So here, when we have the Father coming down, and now we're going to have the true nature of God. Now the Father is bearing testimony. Now the Father is bearing testimony. Now the Father is introducing the Son as the spokesman. Now the Elohim comes down and introduces Jehovah the spokesman to the rest of the council and the family of God. Now it's the time where he comes down. Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name. Hear ye him. And it came to pass that as they understood, they cast their eyes up again towards heaven, and behold, they saw a man descending out of heaven, and he was clothed in a white robe. And he came down and stood in the midst of them, and the eyes of the whole multitude were turned upon him, and they durst not open their mouths, even one to another, and wist not what it meant, for they thought it was an angel that had appeared unto them. And it came to pass that he stretched forth his hand, and he spake unto them, saying, Behold. I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. And behold, I am the light and the life of the world, and I have drunk out of the bitter cup which the Father hath given me, and have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world, in the which I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. I love what you said there, Ben. In that, in the beginning, in those few chapters in eight and nine, it's God that comes along and destroys the outward wickedness. But this Jesus here says that he's the one who suffers the wickedness for all people. See, here's the true message of Jesus Christ. The one that the Father testifies and the one that the Father comes down to be able to tell us how we can become and to know who he is. That Christ has drunk out of the bitter cup which the Father hath given, and it's glorified the Father in taking upon the sins of the world in the which Christ suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. And it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, the whole multitude fell to the earth. For then they remembered that it had been prophesied among them that Christ should show himself even unto them after his ascension into heaven. See, what's powerful about that is Jesus supposedly introduces himself back here in chapter 9, verse 15. But here it's completely different.
0: Yeah, I have been trying to get this talk by jeffrey r holland to load character <laughs> of god i can't get it to open for some reason but um it is something that if you want to sort of uh, delve into this concept of christ being who reveals the father to us you know doctrine and covenants talks about it quite a bit as well but uh if from an LDS perspective jeffrey r holland gets into this it's a it's a beautiful, wonderful talk where he basically says the same thing that, uh, you quoted from Brian on there. And this is the example of that here in, in chapter 11, he invites the people to come forth and actually witness of themselves and, and see everything that's hap- that has happened and who he is so that, uh, they know not just, uh, with the faith that they have, they have believed that he would come, but uh, that they have a perfect knowledge now of who he is it's great here where he then just calls nephi up and can you imagine being nephi i i imagine nephi at this time you know we talked about how nephi had been going around and performing miracles he raised his brother from the dead all these different things imagine nephi now meeting christ I imagine Nephi having had visions prior to this time and witnessing Christ's ministry, having, having seen it, you know, in a sense firsthand and then being able to, to actually see and meet Christ. It must've been a little bit of different experience for him maybe than the others. Uh, I, I'm not sure. In any case, uh, Nephi comes up and, um, Christ gives, says he gives him the power to baptize, which is so interesting because that's what Nephi has been doing this whole time has been baptizing people. <laughs> <And> Christ <laughs> says, okay, now you can baptize people. Nephi's like, uh, <laughs> I've been doing that already, um, <laughs> by the way.
1: <laughs> one of the things I've, th- I've thought about that, and it's not, it's not my original idea. It's one that I've talked about my, with my wife, with Rachel is that it seems to be that as human beings... Now, this goes back to the conversation we were having earlier, that Christ is God-made flesh in order to show us that it is possible to live this way. And that Christ, being man, was able to live this life so that he exampled and showed it for us. And so Christ, Jesus Christ, and the aspect of what is Christ is the natural living of what it means to be human. That the way of the Christ is the way of our true humanity. It's what we were literally built for. It's it's the true essence of our creation as human beings, is to be as Christ is. When we take that name upon us, we literally follow Christ. Now, I've heard the statement before, and, and my wife and I joke a lot, a lot about it. It's that everybody wants to follow Jesus until they see where he's walking towards, right? We all want to follow Jesus until we see that he's walking towards the cross. Then at that point, we're like, I'm out. (laughs) Like, I'm done. But the fact is, is that those who take upon themselves the name of Christ, we are called to do for each other in temporal and finite matters, what Christ has done for us in infinite and eternal matters. And so in this way, baptism... I'm, I'm coming to learn is a natural phenomenon of, of just this natural emanation of who and what we are as human beings. I love in Mosiah 18, when the people of Alma, the elder are converted there at the waters of Mormon, they're converted first. And then Alma comes along and he's like, listen, you've already wanted to do this. You've already been converted to this. You've already been converted to that. What have you against getting into the water and symbolizing this? And just the way he phrases that in chapter 18, like, what have you against being baptized? Just that seems to indicate to me that he's basically not arguing with the people, but he's saying, listen, this thing, why wouldn't you get into the water? And I somehow think that the people are there thinking, well, why would I get into the water and get wet? I'm already converted to God. Why would I get into the water and get wet and just get down and then come back up? And I was like, well, why wouldn't you? And And like, I can see this conversation going on. As Alma recognizes that this baptism, this symbolism of death and destruction and coming forward to something brand new, is this natural emanation of our humanity. And that when Christ comes, he sees what's already been going on. He sees this church that's already been formed. Nowhere in the Book of Mormon does it say that Jesus forms this church, that Jesus is the one that structures this, that God's the one that does this. Alma's the one that starts it. Mm -hmm. And so there's a church here and it's all kind of prophet led, but nowhere in the book of Mormon does it say that it was Jesus that started it. So this baptism thing has been going on for a hundred years and this church thing has been going on for a hundred years. And so finally Jesus comes down and the first thing that he does, it's almost like he gives meaning to what they're already doing. Yeah. He's like, let me give you authority to be able to, so that when you do this, this is the meaning behind it. This is the purpose behind it. When you're actually doing this, do it in this way. And then in that way, when he says, "Let there be no more disputations or, or or any kind of contention be there with you anymore," this is the natural emanation of what it is for your humanity, and this is what that means—that emanation of Christ within you as you are progressing through kind of the celestial heights. You know, everything that the temple symbolizes, all the different layers and levels of light from the from baptism all the way into celestial realms. Let me give you meaning to this. And so that's really what I see Jesus is doing here when He gives them the power and authority to baptize. It's almost like, you know, we build a house to God, and then we ask God to come and live in it. And it's like we build the edifice, and then we ask God to fill it with meaning, and purpose, and the Spirit, and and instruction. And it's almost like, and I and I, and I don't know if this is going and he'll too do far.
0: That, right, he but, will do uh, that. He, he will do that, but there's there could be more, you know? Right.
1: Uh, one way that I'm beginning to look at this, and I don't know if it's the right way or if it's just a way, and I don't know, ask me in five years whether or not I still agree with it, I don't know. <laughs> but it's that we come up with these symbols and we come up with these signs, we come up with these things, and then God fills them with meaning. And he says, okay, now you've found this. This is You're now progressing into this way. This is the new stage of your development. Now let me give you meaning in this. And this is what it means for you. And so I see Christ doing that a lot here. And I love the intimacy in verse 14. Arise and come forth unto me that you may thrust your hands into my side. And also that you may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet. That you may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth and that I've been slain for the sins of the world. See, he's not coming to destroy, he's coming to save. Mm And it came to pass that the multitude went forth and did thrust their hands into his side and did feel the prince and the nails in his hands and in his feet. And this they did do, going forth one by one, until they had all gone forth and did see with their eyes and did feel with their hands and did know of a shorty and did bear record that it was he of whom it had been written by the prophets that should come. Then they all said, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Most High God. And they did fall down at the feet of Jesus and did worship him. This is where he calls Nephi, right? Mm -hmm. It's just good stuff.
0: I uh, finally did get the talk by Elder Holland to load. (laughs) And um, (laughs) there's a couple little paragraphs in here that uh, I want to read. And I think they they go well with uh, some of the parts here we're going to discuss from chapter 11. But he says, of course, the centuries long drift away from belief in such a perfect and caring father. Hasn't been helped any by the man-made creeds of varying generations which describe God variously as unknown and unknowable, formless, passionless, elusive, ethereal, simultaneously everywhere and nowhere at all. Certainly that does not describe the being we behold through the eyes of these prophets. Nor does it match the living, breathing, embodied Jesus of Nazareth, who was and is in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his Father. In that sense... Jesus did not come to improve God's view of man nearly so much as he came to improve man's view of God and to plead with them to love their heavenly Father as he has always and will always love them. The plan of God, the power of God, the holiness of God, yes, even the anger and the judgment of God, they had occasion to understand. But the love of God, the profound depth of his devotion to his children, they still did not fully know until Christ came. Wow. Yeah, love that. Wow. So this uh, this great verse here that uh, I, I try to quote a lot and persuade myself to live by it. <laughs> yeah, verse 29 here. <laughs> For verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention. And he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger, one with another. There's there's an idea that that I wrestle with from time to time to to be able to articulate well, and it's it's something to the effect of, and I th- I think I saw you post a, a quote that was pretty well succinct about it the other day, something to the effect that you know, peace is is uh, often or always I don't know which uh, that's part of the wrestling and articulation of this I'm trying to figure out, but <laughs> peace is is often uh, more important than being right. Something to that effect. Maybe you could find that quote that you said, but <laughs> I I think that's a you know, that's something like what Christ is is saying here and I think he's saying something much more profound than that. Don't get me wrong, but that his doctrine is not about contention. You know, I I hear so often whenever it's it's brought up that you know Christ is the prince of peace and he wants us to renounce war and it's like but Christ said he came to bring the sword and 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 so forth and it's like yes but he also said he's not father of contention so when he says i came to bring the sword it isn't him that's authoring the contention right
1: yeah the the quote that you're looking for is to be selective in your battles for sometimes peace is better than to be right yeah yeah. So this isn't talking about acquiescing. This isn't talking about back- backing down. You know, in my life, I've come to find out, I see, I used to be the bull in a China shop. I still kind of am. And and I recognize that. And I I too, Ben, I read 29. I'm like, ugh, just at me next time. But <laughs> the, the whole purpose there is for me to be selective in my battles is not necessarily for me not to go out and to wage truth, but for me to be reflective on Am I really waging a war for truth? And does truth need a war to be waged in its name? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah you know, does reality need, do I need to go out there and defend the law of gravity today? Yeah, maybe I do, but the gravity is just gravity. And I'll just maybe let gravity do its own sermon today <laughs> and let everybody just go out and experience it. I don't think I necessarily need to defend it. And if somebody's going to question it, largely I'm just going to shrug my shoulders and move on with life. So in this way, if someone's arguing against gravity, maybe it's better just to be able to create harmony, reconciliation, love, brotherhood, compassion, as opposed to telling the other person all the ways that they're wrong so that you can be right.
0: Yeah, I love how he follows this up. Behold, this is not my doctrine to stir up the hearts of men with anger, one against another. But this is my doctrine that such things should be done away. Behold, verily, verily I say unto you, I will declare unto you my doctrine. Then Christ goes into a discussion, seemingly poetic and and redundant at times discussion about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, right? We can kind of say, well, what's going on here? Wouldn't like one verse suffice to say you and the Father and Son, Father and Son, and the Holy Ghost are one, right? But uh, he, he goes to lengths to explain from every facet and understanding that this fa- this uh, judgmental father that you seem to have perceived or, or imagined up in your hearts is not who I am, and the father and I are one. And so that God that you've imagined up unto yourselves is, is not who the father is. And when you see me and what I do, you see who the Father is as well. And you should no longer perceive God in that way, but you should perceive God through your experience with me.
1: Yeah, isn't it interesting too that in that very narrative of Christ re-evaluate, helping us reevaluate what we see of the Father through him, that we talk about baptism, which symbolically is the death of the old and the bringing up of the new, so now we're completely new creatures. All of our ego, all of our beliefs, all of our everything that we've had before is gone. We are now this, call it a tabula rasa, if you will, this new blank slate, this new person that the old of us is dead and we're now new. And then he says in verse 37, and again, I say unto you that you must repent and become as a little child and be baptized in my name or you can nowise receive these things. In other words, this repentance is... You've seen me all wrong this whole time. You've seen the Father wrong this whole time. And as such, you've seen yourself wrong this whole time. And because of those three things, you see each other wrong. See, and now you need to repent. See me differently. See my Father differently. See yourself differently, and look what that's going to do in your relationships with everyone around you. See, Ben, that's why I love that LDS definition, that LDS Bible defi- um, dictionary definition of repentance. It's the changing of our minds and our views of God to see them differently, to see ourselves differently. And and, and that's what I find is so glorious about here. Christ come, Christ literally comes down. The Father testifies of who he is. He says he's the light and life of the world, that he's suffered for the world, that he's the one that has suffered for the wickedness of the world. He allows everyone to come up and to thrust their hands into his side to testify that, yes, it's really me. I'm not an imposter. Here's the proof. And then for him to immediately turn and say, everything that you've been doing here with these ordinances of baptism in this church Okay, let me give meaning to that, and let me show you exactly what it is that you've been missing out on this whole time. Let me help you repent. And that's going to springboard next week, because the very first thing that Christ talks about at the Sermon of the Temple is now the Beatitudes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's it's, it's beautiful introduction to that in how he he brings that in. Beautiful chapter, uh, one that uh, I think is, like I said before, justly read over and over and analyzed and reanalyzed and discussed and and uh, felt and sat with, as it should be and could continue to be. And uh, I think uh, part my only lament here is that I I just feel like Christianity at large misses out on so much when they don't accept this and for all that it, it could be and it could add to their experience uh with christ there's just there's there's a lot there that they could have
1: yeah well everyone thank you for listening so far thank you for listening through this all then we've gone over longer than we have before i i started this recording this with you Ben, tonight with a heavy heart i didn't know quite where to go with this where this ended up going for me now i have things in my head like for instance the first vision when god the father comes down and tells joseph smith you know satan was there before that right yeah <laughs> and so now i'm thinking about that and then just be in the new testament in matthew 5 be just right before christ goes and in in matthew chapter 4 jesus is tempted of the devil And so the devil appears and there's the whole temptation there. And then Jesus rebukes him and sends him away. It's a repeated
0: pattern throughout scripture. Like I said, you know, there's so many things about it that fit that I just, I'm not saying (laughs) I believe it's the case, but I, 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 it's something that I I really want to keep chewing on a little bit.
1: Oh my goodness. Yeah. when When you, again, when you brought that up to me this morning, I'm like, um... Yeah, let's not say we did. Let's not do that and say we didn't. I just let's just let's kind of avoid that, but when you talked to me about it, I just was like, wow, we let, let's just at least put this out there. It, now now it's recorded. Now we're going to now we're going to put it out there. Everybody tell us See what you See if it think. survives editing. <laughs> See what survives editing. All right, everybody, tell us what you think. Um what what's present for you in this discussion? What have you thought about what has been a part of your feelings in this? Um, as you read these chapters, what were your feelings of Christ in both 8 and 9 and here in chapter 11? Give us some ideas, some pointers about how you would talk about the, the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes, if that has been a, a thing for you, and we'll do that. Now, maybe next week, Ben, you and I had possibly discussed maybe doing a two-part episode again with the, sermon, with the beginning of the sermon here, contextualizing it it's just there's so much here we I mean, we've been doing these thursday night zoom meetings for uh for a group that we're in and literally we spent one week going over each beatitude and it took us 10 weeks to go through it and it's like we took 10 weeks and it was every night was amazing just taking one beatitude at a time i don't know how i'm gonna get through the whole thing in just even an hour just what is the beatitude so anyway we'll figure it out and then meet back here next week great awesome Well, until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan.
0: And I'm Ben Peterson.
1: Thank you guys for listening.